Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, as always. And as has been the you know trend for the last few weeks, we're still in the book of Revelation. And you know, we, we are just plowing through this uh this whole thing here, guys. We are going verse by verse, and we are just digging into some of this ridiculously complex theology and we are looking at just some profound truths and helping ourselves to understand what is really uh, going on here and we have got some incredibly difficult texts to deal with today as we are going to look at uh, chapter 11 and 11 is um, about let me see here 19 verses long. It's broken into two sections. The seventh trumpet is the last section, but we get the two witnesses to start off chapter 11. And so we kind of have this law in between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And now we have these two witnesses that come on the, onto the playing field. And we are going to figure out what this really entails. What does this mean? And, because if we were to go through the dispensational view, obviously, if you have uh, read the Left Behind books, they will uh, point you to you know uh, people like Elijah and Moses appearing in Jerusalem and uh, witnessing, and then in that they have this uh, kind of power, if you would, to not be harmed, and so it, it's a very very literal and dispensational interpretation to it. So we're going to kind of see if we can't try and uh, hash this out a little bit better, maybe provide a different basis of understanding to this complex text. Uh, and, and as we've said numerous times on this, these episodes, you know, there's various ways to read and interpret scripture and 
Revelation is not any different. So please go back and listen to episode one as we kind of hash that out, the different ways to read and understand this book and hopes that we don't step on any toes because, again, the last thing I want to do is just say, well, this is obviously wrong. However, if we were to take the certain views and apply it to certain passages, it can cause some, you know, uh, some issues. And so what we're trying to do is uh, provide just a kind of, you know, more simpler way to understand the text in hopes that we can come to a unified agreement on what this text is actually talking about. So we have uh, our text today going to be the 11th chapter in the book of Revelation. Um, That means this will conclude part three of our seven-part show. Uh, I haven't really emphasized too much um, in the setups, if you would, on like how each part really goes. Um, but we have essentially four more parts, and that will span uh, the rest of the book. And so next week we're going to look at uh, chapter 12 and maybe a little bit of 13, depending on how we divide these up. You know, And this will go all the way down to uh, the 22nd chapter, uh, and that will be the last uh, couple of episodes there. Uh, and then, you know, I, I don't want to do a wrap up, but we might do a wrap up show on this whole series after we get through this book just to kind of um, bring everything back in together and help to get people to understand some things. Uh, I had a particular person DM me yesterday asking if a particular passage from Second Thessalonians was speaking towards rapture. And I uh, would point this person over and over back to, you know, the episodes that I talked about in regards to the Pauline eschatology, where we talked about that particular passage. And then I would point them back as well to Matthew, where Paul is just uh, basically speaking in reflection to what Jesus was talking about in the Mount of Olives, in the Olivet Discourse. And so, you know, we we have a lot of people, and, and, and like I said, there's probably more people today that are dispensational premillennialist, and they probably don't know it in terms of that title, but they probably would say, well, you know, Billy Graham spoke on of a rapture and, you know, all of these prominent, you know, people speak of a rapture and a seven year tribulation, all these things. And I look at it and I say, yeah, that's a great way to, you can say bait Christians or bait people into Christianity. Because it's a it's a loving and feel good message that hey become a Christian and you won't experience persecution because if if the end of the world happens then you'll escape it because a rapture is going to come and take you out and then the world um, will be left to face the judgment of God but uh, those people left will definitely not be Christians and then obviously in the in that time period people will come to know Christianity and. Because fake, you know, false Christians will be left and then they'll be in despair and they'll actually search for Christ and, you know, all these things. So it's a feel good message, if you would, that, you know, just come to Christ and you'll be saved and you won't have to experience immense persecution, which uh, we don't see that anywhere in the Bible in terms of of dodging persecution. We, we just don't. Paul writes about it. Peter writes about it. I mean, come on. They killed Jesus on a cross. They killed every apostle and they've persecuted the church for 2000 years. 
So while we here in the West might sit and ponder at this notion that a rapture is going to happen, I just cannot help but think that is a, a, a folly of a thought that it's just not going to. And so I hold strict to, you know, a very uh, anti-rapture position, really, because I think, again, it provides a false sense of, of security for Christians today. And, and it's really only in Western thought that this happens. So we'll probably do a whole episode, I think, and I might even get some people on that one and to kind of discuss, hey, you know, uh, you've listened to some or all or a few of these episodes, you know, you have a particular view on eschatology. Let's kind of get a, you know, discussion going on it. So we'll look at maybe a round panel, round table type panel thing going for that particular show. And then that'll conclude it. And then we'll move on to a short series. I think we're going to do for a couple of weeks to kind of talk about some of the lesser known or lesser discussed books in scripture and characters that people just may not know too much of, but contributed something significant to the overall story. So that was a a recommendation from my wife and I thought it was brilliant. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to go through uh, the whole book, uh, the whole Bible, the whole, uh, all 66 books of the Bible verse by verse. And we're going to discuss it uh, in depth. And so we'll probably use this show, the, these, you know, episodes as a uh, staple to when we get to revelation and we'll save uh, that book or that, you know, little series for last. And then I, I don't know if I'll republish these shows in that sense, because we kind of have them into a particular arch here that it's discussing eschatology, but we'll see. I don't know yet. So any who's guys and gals, thank you for listening and thank you for tuning in. Uh, it is a blessing and an honor to be running this show and a lot and having you listen. Um, you know, I was just looking at numbers and again, I'm a very analytical type person and sometimes it gets me into trouble in terms of like with myself because I, I want to, I want to have this show, you know, go out there and be listened to by a lot of people because, you know, the work we put into it and not only that, but I mean, we're preaching Christ. And, and I mean, who wouldn't want the, a show that's preached about, you know, that discusses Jesus and especially the end of times and a world that's so confused with truth to just essentially go viral. I would love that. And so as I'm looking at like all these overall numbers, we are just, we're doing fairly well. I have, I'm quite impressed with how everything has gone, um, has come down in the last uh, couple of weeks here. We've got, um, just under 3000 total listens in the last 30 days. And that's a tremendous uptick where, uh, our growth is 16% prior, you know, about a year ago, we were maybe not quite a year, maybe about six or eight months ago, we were closer to the 4,000 mark. And so we probably lost some listeners as we've been in this series now for a very long time. And that's normal shows have, the massive fluctuations and people who subscribe and unsubscribe and come and go. I mean, I've unsubscribed from various shows and I come back to them over time and, you know, and I know this is not an easy to work through, um, series. It's just not, it's complex and it's not a primary doctrine. It's very much a secondary or tertiary doctrine. And so it's difficult to deal with, but, uh, 
you know, I, I say that because we're, you know, overall, if I set my mark to all time and apply it, our overall listens on the shows are 87,121 downloads. And that ranges from back February 7th of 2019 when we started on Dying Light, Paul and I did. And that goes all the way to uh, yesterday's numbers. So 87,000 downloads. That is that is amazing. We're so close to 100,000 downloads. And uh, we've only published 148 episodes. This is 149. And so that means next week is 150. So uh, we're, I don't know what we're going to quite do for that one, but I'm very excited for it. But, uh, you know, I get to look at these, uh, you know, the, the chart and the spikes here, you know, and we were uh, through the month of February and March, you know, we were really low, just a few downloads, single digits for the longest time. And then, boy, April 23rd, we hit 85 and then we just have been spiking upwards since then. Um, our highest downloaded date. And this is just fun stats. I, I, I kind of like this kind of stuff. Our highest download date, and I know the show, uh, it was when Paul and I did Romans 1. It was on uh, October 11th of 2019, and that has 1.32 thousand downloads to date. Uh, and then we have various others in the high hundreds um, on launch date. And uh, June 29th had 547, for instance. So we have quite a few that are really up there. There's one 533 on January 31st of 19, I'm sorry, of 2020. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trending well and, uh, you know, and it's thanks to you guys, the listeners. And so if you do like and listen to this show, then please share it out with your you know, your groups, share it with your church, share it with your friends, uh, get the word out. Cause that's the easiest way to grow this podcast and this platform is word of mouth. And, you know, I, again, I'm very analytical. And so, you know, you do all your research and, you know, building essentially a platform for a podcast. And the easiest thing to do is word of mouth. I can spend all the money I want on advertising and that might get me a little bit, but at the end of the day, word of mouth is the best way to grow a show. And, uh, and so because of you guys, I am so blessed to have that, um, those numbers and they mean a lot to me. So actually I have a small correction. The Romans one episode is actually at 1800 listens, uh, as of right now, it is our highest listened to show a uh, total depravity. Part one has 1700 and, uh, I'd shared it out just a few days ago. Uh, the modern worship comes in at uh, fifth place here at 1128. So those are uh, a couple of our highest recorded episodes or highest downloaded episodes. And, and again, like I said, numbers are just fun because it, it helps me see who you are as a listener. Like, where are you listening to uh, from? You know, what devices? Apple Podcasts is our highest platform. Um, other, I don't know what that really entails. You know, Spotify so little at 1,490, but we have 64,000 downloads on Apple Podcasts. That's tremendous. So you guys love your Apple. Um, and then it tells me my referrals, what websites and stuff. There was, you know, okay, here's one, a location. I love this one too. And I don't know why I'm just going down this rabbit hole with you guys, but uh, I'm just, again, I, I can't share my thanks enough. So we have 20 people in Russia who listen to our show. 20 people. That's amazing. 
you know, and then we have them in South Africa, Australia, uh, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, um, all over uh, the Middle East and England and North Africa, Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, I, I think that's awesome, guys. Norway. Come on now. That is so cool. And I'm trying to see here, get a couple other, Afghanistan's got 45. Wow. India, 254 people. Uh, uh, These are downloads by location, I'm sorry. So this is how often the show's downloaded in these countries, not actual active listeners. But uh, still very, very awesome to see these stats. Um, Guys, we have nobody in Kazakhstan. We got to work on getting them. (laughs) downloads there. Uh, but no, I just like to look at that because it sees where my show's going. We're around the world and I've got listeners all over the world. And because of that, thank you so much. And, you know, as I have kind of talked about it on every show, it's because of you guys that this show keeps going. And to know that we are listener supported. And, you know, I'd mentioned something to the Patreons in our little video recording before we started this show that, I don't set up tiers on Patreon. I don't make you have to buy anything or pay for anything in addition for literally as low as a dollar a month. You guys can have uh, access to everything we do uh, within this ministry. And so that one dollar does go a long way. And so we're hoping to grow this from the 52 we have today to 75 so we can do another big giveaway. But it's also more than that. It's also growing this community and growing like-minded believers in hopes that uh, we all can share in the glory of Christ together. And so I can't thank you guys enough. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. All of the information, uh, contact information is listed in the show notes. So check it out. Uh, right. So we're going to dig into the text today, guys and gals, and we're going to see where we end up. And um, <sighs> boy, we've got we've got a monstrous amount of work to do. So without further ado, let's do it. Uh, We're going to read these first couple of verses here, and uh, we're going to see what it brings up for us. Uh, Starting in verse 1, chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it was given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant uh, authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Whoa. All right. So what is this temple? Why are we not measuring the outside? Why are we measuring anything to begin with? Who are these two witnesses? And why 1260 days? It almost feels like Revelation just took a left turn for us. And... It almost feels like um, we just are like we've been going along with like these events that really correlated well with what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 and 25. And then we talk about like how these end of times events can really be, you know, symbolic towards other things happening. And then all of a sudden we have a very specific event that's going to last a very specific amount of time. And uh, and then we're told to measure a temple. Well, not us, John, right? Then I, John, was told 
uh, or was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I and, and John was told, rise and measure the temple of God. So why is John measuring this temple? Well, we're going to kind of give a little pretext to what is going on here. And I think this, uh, I'm going to read some of these notes here. And I think that kind of provides a little bit of interesting uh, allegory here. So let's see what it says. Uh, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, stops at the interpreter's house to be shown a number of visions designed to teach important spiritual lessons. First was a picture of a man looking to heaven, holding a book, wearing a crown, and pleading with men to listen. The meaning was that Christians should listen only to faithful and holy Bible teachers. Second, he was shown a larger, uh, a large parlor filled with dust. The man came to sweep, but the dust merely fell around the room. Then a girl came and sprinkled the room with water, after which the room was easily swept clean. This vision illustrated how the broom of the law cannot clean the heart until it has been sprinkled with the water of the gospel. Further il- visions illustrated a variety of spiritual lessons uh, important to the Christian life. The reader of Pilgrim's Progress realizes that Bunyan is representing or is presenting allegories because of the way in which he means his characters. The men who witnessed who witnesses the gospel is called evangelist. The pilgrim is called Christian, and he is led astray by pliable and obstinate. And he receives his visions in the house of a man named Interpreter. And by the way, if you haven't read John. Uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a f- great read. I would r- highly recommend it. So obviously we know that Revelation is not an allegory for the Pilgrim's cro- Progress, but the book does have apocalyptic visions. And so, and in this, we know that Bunyan's masterpiece, Revelation, functions in a way uh, that cues how we should read it. From the very beginning, as we've d- talked about over and over, uh, Revelation will employ symbols that depict redemptive historical realities. In chapter 1, Jesus appears in the midst of golden lamp uh, candlesticks that represent the churches, uh, holding stars in his hand that symbolizes angels, and with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth that depicts the sharpness of his message. We can clearly interpret these images symbolically. This is same, uh, The same is true for John's use of numbers, including seven to depict the completeness of the Holy Spirit and the uh, 144,000 to depict the vast multitude of the redeemed drawn to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ. We, As we interpret the detailed visions of Revelations chapter 11, 12, and 13, it is vital that we remember the kind of literature we are reading. Some Christians assert that we must interpret these passages literally as given a more or less straightforward description of historical events, either past or future. This approach forgets, however, the very nature of Revelation urges us to interpret these visions symbolically. Just as the nature of Pilgrim's Progress compels us to interpret John Bunyan allegorically. So, as I've mentioned, these passages cannot just be plucked out and interpreted any differently because if you're going to walk through the book at one measure we should be paying attention to how we interpret the text and that same interpretation should apply from uh, chapter one all the way to chapter 22 we don't get to change our method of interpretation halfway through the book just because it sounds better in our mind or it makes us feel more comfortable as christians so 
as we have looked in the past few episodes at how some of the numbers and imagery can be taken symbolically, we are going to apply that same method here in these next few chapters over the next couple of episodes. So chapter 11 here opens with this concept of measuring. So he's given a measuring rod, like a staff, uh, presumably by a mighty angel who he had met with him in the preceding chapter. John was then told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but not outside the temple court. That's kind of interesting, right? Why would you measure the inside and then not outside? But then What's really more interesting about not doing the outside, like, because we can see, okay, you know, you're measuring inside for some reason and not the outside for obvious reasons. But what happens here in verse two is it says, leave that out for it was given over to the nations for they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So is this the temple of God in Jerusalem or is this the temple of God in heaven? Well, let's find out. The most commonly held view of this passage is that uh, today is really a literal futuristic view. And this is, as I've mentioned, associated with this dispensationalist theology. And this approach emphasizes a strict literal reading of the scripture. Uh, Perhaps more important to the dispensationalism is the belief that God's plans for Israel and for the church are fundamentally and eternally different. And so this gentleman, Anthony Hokamea, explains that according to dispensationalists, when the Bible talks about Israel, it does not mean the church. And when the Bible talks about the church, it does not mean Israel. Under this view, the book of Revelation primarily addresses God's future plans for ethnic Israel and has no direct message about the Christian church. The dispensational commentator, Donald Gray Barnhouse, insists on the book of Revelation essentially Jewishness and urges that it is entirely concerned with the future from the beginning of the fourth chapter. In this approach, Revelation 11 speaks of future events completely unrelated to the situation and pastoral needs of the church in which John was writing as he faced dire and imminent threat from Roman persecution. A more likely thesis for this book of Revelation is hardly imaginable. So under this dispensational literalist future approach, this temple that John is told to measure is a literal building and it's being constructed in Israel and will erect on Mount Zion. So this is the third temple. This is what the dispensationalist will hold to. Now, we know that currently this site is uh, occupied by two uh, Muslim mo- uh, mosques, the Dome of the Rock and the al Qasak uh, mo- uh, Mosque. I probably butchered that, but, you know, I sue me. <laughs> These must be removed probably through uh, a war that is to come. And then once those temples are removed, those mosques are removed, a third Jewish temple will then be uh, planted. Now, this is this is actually really interesting here. As I've mentioned um, prior episodes that uh, Israel became a nation in 1948. And then we have Israel's capture of Jerusalem in 1967. And these signs are like, the dispensationalists, like they're they're edge of their seat. 
they're like really super antsy. Like this is it. Jesus is coming back any minute now. And so when they read this passage in chapter 11 and 12 and 13 here, they're going to be like really on edge because now they need that third temple to be built. Well, we know that God had the temple destroyed in 8070 by a Roman invasion. And so there is no temple standing there. And obviously, as we just mentioned, that it's occupied by two Muslim mosques. So we would have to have some sort of war here in Jerusalem uh, between the Jews and the Muslims in order to uh, recapture that site. And it, it finds that, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of views. There's a lot of problems with these views. So because the emphasis here on God's rejection of this temple, a second approach sees this passage as foretelling Jerusalem's past destruction in 8070. This is a preterist position, which for this reason gives what, uh, for this reason believes that John wrote revelation before the destruction of the Jewish temple. This causes some, some bigger issues. Uh, there's two main problems here. First, it is highly unlikely that revelation was written as early as the mid sixties, as this view requires. And the witness of the early church uniformly attests to John's writing this book much later, probably in the mid nineties. Uh, moreover, the persecution of Nero, Nero in the sixties took a different form of persecution described in the book of revelation and did not extend into the providence of Asia. The second objection to the preterist approach arbitrarily employs a symbolic and literal interpretation. So, you know, if we apply this uh, very literal interpretation, what we're going to get here is some very interesting uh, dynamics here. We would have to have, you know, Jesus come back only after this third temple is being built. So now we're applying this, applying this requirement and which really doesn't, show up in Matthew 24. We don't have a particular set requirement. Now, we, we, we know Jesus gives us these things will happen, but he doesn't specify that a third temple is going to be built. He basically tells us right at the beginning of 24 that the temple that they are, that the apostles were oohing and awing over is going to be destroyed. He doesn't say it's going to be rebuilt. He says that not one stone will be left on top of another. And so the vision here of Revelation 11 enters uh, it centers on this image of a temple, which throughout the New Testament is primarily used to describe the Christian church. Uh, James Hamilton, uh, if you haven't read James Hamilton, I strongly urge you to go do it. Uh, he writes, the Bible's theology of the temple is not about a building so much as it is about God being with his people. Paul told the Christians that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you. First Corinthians 3.16. For we are the temple of the living God, he adds. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and you shall be my people. Peter said that Christians are together being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in this context, then, a literal understanding of the temple is not a building like that which was replaced by Christ in his church, but as G.K. Bale uh, puts it, the focus is now on a whole covenant community forming a spiritual temple in which God's presence dwells. So just these first few verses, we can say that it's not a physical temple, 
that John is referencing here, but that this is a spiritual temple and really is describing the Christians. And then everything outside of this temple are unbelievers. And the they will continue to trample uh, this holy city. And so, you know, the fate that sealed Jerusalem in 8070 and, and in the future, the world will run uh, over the church. It will just continue to slaughter and commit this bloodshed. And then we have this uh, for 42 months is a, a symbolic period in which applies in various forms here in the next couple of chapters. Uh, this 1260 days is a time uh, and times in a half a time, even as three and a half days, as verse 1111 we'll get to. So really, one of the easiest things that we can maybe pull out of these 42 months is that it is a uh, just signifying a period of persecution and testing for God's people, as we've noted from various chapters in Daniel and other episodes of the book of Revelation. So now we get uh, the two witnesses. Now, this has got some interesting connections here. So I'm going to kind of read verses 4 and on to 14. And then we're going to, pro- we're going to try to fill these, these holes in here for us. Uh, there, were, there are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone should harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war with them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some uh, from the peoples and tribes and languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been tormented to those, had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell over those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, a third woe is to come soon. Whoa, man. These two witnesses. This is a great movie story line right here. Just this block of text. And, you know, the Left Behind series really took it and ran with it. So if you've read those, I keep going back to it because I just find them to be the most uh, literal dispensationist interpretation I've ever read on this, um, on this. And, uh, It is just a massive amount of stuff you have to work through. In the books, they literally have Moses and 
Elijah standing in Jerusalem preaching and they're consuming their enemies with fire. They dry up the, the skies so no rain comes around the world and they make the waters turn to blood. I mean, they are just just preaching and they're bringing plagues upon people when they are when the people uh, try to test their authority and things like that. And then the Antichrist in the books are like trying to wage war against them, but he can't. And so, but at that moment that he, uh, they their time of preaching is up, he comes in and demolishes them. And so it's like, okay, um, that sounds great and all, but where does that fit in with this particular um, this particular thing here? I mean, it just it just does not make any sort of sense, and it really just becomes quite a monstrous task to try and figure this thing out. I really just, I cannot, I cannot like just for the life of me explain the way and then allow this particular passage to be interpreted as a literal or symbolical as we've worked ourselves through. And then we come to this and then we're like, Oh, we're going to change the pace again. So, Either we take all of Revelation and interpret it literal, and Jesus is standing there amongst the golden candlesticks with you know a sword coming out of his mouth and fire out of his eyes. Then, then you have to keep that interpretation all the way through. Uh, or likewise, if you're going to sit here and tell me that these are two individual people standing here and uh, performing these acts, then you have to accept revelation one as literal i mean it just you can't say anything in this book is symbolic if you say only one aspect is so we have to apply that same hermeneutic across the entire thing so in the opening verses of this chapter john's told to measure this temple uh, with its altar and the worshipers depicting the true church and faithful believers the outer court depicts the false church and nominal christians were excluded and then, obviously, as we said, the 42 months and the nations will trample the church through God's protective barrier will preserve its spiritual life. We saw in the previous chapter, though, that 42 months and its equivalents equal the length of Jerusalem's defilement by Antiochus uh, in the second century B.C., as prophesied in Daniel 7. So in Revelation, this number depicts not just a length of time in history, uh, but as we've said, but it's a testing of Christ and his church here, from Christ to his church. Uh, this is the very situation that John, John's original readers face in the first century AD that many Christians will continue to face uh, throughout the rest of time here. So Revelation 11.3 begins with and, and it's showing that we are continuing this vision that we begin back in verse 1, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. The church is described in the figure as two witnesses in light of the Bible's requirement that truth be established by a testimony of two, Deuteronomy 17.6. This emphasizes the legal validity of the church's witness to the gospel, just as God often sent two angels to announce judgment or to validate truth. We realize as well that Jesus sent out uh, evangelists by two by two. So the emblem of two witnesses speaks to the church in its evangelistic calling. The letters from Jesus to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3 
made clear that the entire church is called to bear witness to Christ in his gospel. And when the fifth seal was broken in Revelation 6, 9, John saw the martyrs of the church who had been slain by the word of God uh, for their witnesses they had borne. So William Hendrickson writes, therefore writes this, these witnesses symbolize the church militant bearing witness through its ministries and missionaries throughout the present dispensation. John is often told that the church will prophesy for 1260 days. In this context, to prophesy means to declare God's truth. Scholars wonder why the time here is expressed in days rather than months, uh, than the months that were expressed back in verse 2. When possible answers at verse 2 speaks of the siege on the church and that siege that siege is normally measured in months as the witnesses of the church, however, is a day-to-day endeavor. So these two witnesses clothed in sackcloth, this is a rough attire expressing the inward grief and, the, and repentance for sin. As we look back again to G.K. Bale, he notes that this entire suggests mourning over the judgment that their message will result in, together in their hope that the that at least some of the hearers will uh, repent. So again, if we were to point to an understanding and look at what the text tells us and use scripture to interpret scripture, then we can say that the church is the, is the witnesses here is that as we go out, we are to go out two by two and we are to witness and those witnesses are us. But the time period still causes us to kind of try to figure out what's going on here. And not only that, but it tries to, you know, figure out what is going on here um, with the powers here. And I think, I think a great kind of example is what I mentioned earlier is that the witness of the church is a day-to-day endeavor. And so unlike the month, the months that were given the 40 months earlier in the chapter here in reflection to a period of judgment, this 1260 days is again, another symbolical representation of just a day-to-day grind that Christians face when we go out into the world to witness. So it's often, or it's pretty obvious here that this particular chapter is relying heavily on symbols rather than speaking of a future individual, uh, especially since Revelation eleven eight tells us to interpret this vision symbolically. Right, we go to eight, and their dead bodies lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So, this vision is symbolical. This approach is made all the more certain by the description of the two witnesses as olive trees, two lampstands, and the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Moses. These figures describe the means of the church's witnesses, the effect of its witnesses, and God's protection through its witness. The witness's power that the church wields through prayer. And in these symbols, the vision provides, provided the encouragement needed to be believed Christians to whom John was writing to that day. So I think it's very easy for us to sum up this particular set of passages here. That if you are describing a person as an olive tree and a lampstand, you're not describing them literally. You're describing them symbolically. And obviously we see that the witnesses here are not named. It just says, and I have given 
authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so these individuals going out to witness into the world are, is the church and the church going forward to witness, you know, in pairs and they do so with uh, sackcloth because they are in mourning of the judgment to come. And they hope that at least some of the hearers that they are preaching to will come to repent. And so, again, we have so much that we can really try and unpack in this particular passage here. And, you know, this power to rain down fire and uh, close up the heavens, I think, you know, we have to be very careful with how we interpret that. So, you know, Revelation 6 here speaks of the witnessing power through prayer. They had the power to shut the sky and that no rain may fall during their prophesying. They had the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Elijah prayed in the idolatrous days of King Ahab and that the skies do not produce rain for three and a half years. Uh, as noted in 1 Kings 17.1 and Luke 4.5. So note the parallel time reference. Moses turns waters of the Nile into blood along with many other devastating plagues as uh, Exodus 7, 7 and ongoing state. The witnessing church of the gospel era will not be equipped with less power than those of the Old Testament heroes, but through prayer will yield conquering power. The Apostle James urges that prayer of a righteous person has great power and and appealed to the example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half, uh, for three years and six months, three and a half years, it did not rain. Acts 12 here records how Christians prayed when Peter was facing execution in Herod's prison. And God sent an angel to free the apostle. This shows divine power as always being available to the faithful churches through prayer. Now, I, I really want to kind of segue here because this book, you know, is talking about obviously bringing down fire and rain and things like that. Um, it, and we'll kind of write a conclusion on this, but God's prayer or our prayer to God is, is, is truly powerful. And, and I can, t- I can be a witness to that. You know, f- all of last year, I was diligently trying to find a church that um, w- w- was fit my, my preaching style uh, my personality and, uh, you know, and, and find where God was really ultimately calling me to go. And so, you know, I applied a couple of places. And when I applied to this church here in Iowa, uh, I, I still have these conversations with my, the church president. And he tells me, he goes, you know, we, we sat down and we just prayed and we prayed and we prayed through the opening, uh, weeks of our search. And then, you know, we weren't finding anybody that we were, ultimately considering. And then we kind of had one candidate that they were considering. And then, um, and then he's like, then you came along and he's like, we just knew in that moment that you were, were to be the next pastor here. And we could see as all of the times that we came together to pray as a church, that you were the one that God has brought to us. And, you know, and so I can reflect on that saying that when the, faithful in Christ come together to pray, God will still bring miracles. And not to say that I'm a miracle by any means, but you know, the fact that God has brought his word to this church to continue to be preached from the time that the last pastor retired to me 
even though it was a short period, God is still faithful to this congregation and bringing me here to preach his word. And so if we were to sit here and say that these 12 witnesses are, are literal people and that are, they would be, then they would be literally trees and lampstands and they would literally be bringing fire and, and such down onto the earth. And so I, you know, we have to just kind of be smart with our interpretation and say, well, how are these things really being applied? And I think, you know, we, we get a different perspective when we just start to think about scripture as a whole and how prayer and the church can have a great impact and be represented symbolically in this text. So taken as a whole, John's vision in, in Revelation 11 shows the power of the witnessing church through the word, through the sacraments, and through prayer by the power of God's spirit. By these quote-unquote ordinary means of grace, the church is enabled to declare the truth of God's word, prevail over evil, and deliver sinners from judgment. James Hamilton again writes for us that this is what makes the church potent. Not money, not political influence, not marketing gimmicks, not anything that involves a worldly strategy. The church's power is the spirit-empowered, father-protected proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a wonderful quote, and I'm going to take that and put it up on my church website today. Because that is what we as a church should be focused on. Preaching the word, delivering the sacraments, and always being fervent in prayer. That is what we see the needs of the church being. All right, so let's wrap up this show, guys. We might actually make it under an hour. I'm quite impressed with ourselves. Again, I, I just want to provide as simple uh, understandings of this text as possible, and there's a lot more we can dig into it, but I want to be as simple and straightforward as possible. So we get to the seventh trumpet here, and we're going to read the last of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and for you have taken power, uh, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. In the time for the dead to be judged for and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavenly hail. So we have the kingdom of God declared, celebrated, consummated, and standing for the kingdom of heaven here in these last couple of verses. So this is a wonderful conclusion here to this uh, 11th chapter. Again, I think it goes to show um, that all of these events we have to very delicately expound ourselves into. Uh, Revelations, visions of the seals, trumpets, bulls, and the seven, seventh member of each series directs us to what happens not on earth but in heaven. So as we've looked at uh, in these events, the seals, trumpets, and bulls, every time we get to that seventh action, it's not something that's happening on earth, but it is something happening in heaven. So this is keeping with Revelation's purpose to show us our history from a vantage 
point of God's throne above. When the sixth seal was opened, there was silence for half an hour in heaven. When the seventh bull was poured, a loud voice from God's throne is declared, It is done. That's coming up in chapter 16. When the seventh trumpet is sounded, loud heavenly voices proclaim that Jesus has come into his eternal kingdom on the earth. Paul wrote that the last trumpet will blow at the return of Christ when the dead are raised for the final judgment, 1 Corinthians 15. The Revelation 7th trumpet does not describe the details of these events, which are later given in Revelation, but simply announces Christ's return to judge. Now, dispensationalists teach that this trumpet heralds only a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, which after another rebellion will occur, uh, failing to note that this trumpet proclaims an eternal reign. He shall reign forever and ever, Revelation eleven fifteen. The preterists see this trumpet as the beginning of the gospel age in which Christ's spiritual reign begins. Uh, verse 18 defines it as the time for the dead to be judged. The seventh trumpet therefore announces the glorious return of the king of kings, Jesus to reign forever on earth. So, here we have our last trumpet blasting, and we know that it's happening in heaven. Paul tells us that at the last trumpet, Christ will return, and the dead are raised for their final judgment. Now, this goes back to that episode on the dead so or death, so make sure you go back and listen to that, because then you get into some of the various views on how, what happens when we die. But this is a great illustration pointing us again all the way back to Matthew uh, 24. And I'm going to get back to that point because I, I think we miss the connections over and over and over in Scripture. And, and I really want to illustrate this, um, this aspect for us here. So I'm going to read two pieces of passage from Matthew 24. And again, we talked about these extensively in our uh, Olivet Discourse series. So starting in 29, this is what Jesus says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We've already gone through a lot of that stuff here in the book of Revelation. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes on earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And then I was going to read this other passage here, starting verse 36 in chapter 24. Jesus says, but concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as the days of Noah, uh, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day of when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware that the flood would come and sweep them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. So then, okay, look at this right here. There's this analogy of two people again. Then there were two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day on which your Lord is coming. Now, obviously, we know that the church has pairs, and they go out to witness. In this particular context, um, with the pair of people illustrated, one is going to be taken, and the other is going to be left. Now, this isn't this talking about a particular rapture, because, see, just earlier, Jesus says that when he returns, 
he will call up his church with him. When he calls up his church, that means that those who are not his church will be left. And this is Jesus coming to establish his eternal reign forever and ever. That's what Revelation states. This isn't a thousand year reign. This isn't a, you know, rapture that is going to start off a seven year tribulation. This is it. This is the end of it. Time ceases in this moment that Jesus returns because see everything that we understand in time and space in terms of life and death, all of it goes away. The dead will be raised to be judged. Those who are alive and in Christ will be called up to him. And those who are dead in Christ will then have Christ as their advocate. And those who are dead outside of Christ will face judgment. Go back and listen to the death episode. So guys, I mean, this the, the text here in Revelation is the last trumpet stands. is fairly straightforward. This event happens in heaven. Jesus is being praised as he is now going to begin his eternal reign. Then these elders fall on their face and worship God. And then from 17 down to 19, we have this scene of praises that these nations were raging. God comes in and silences them. And he is rewarding his servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear his name, both small and great. And then God destroys the destroyers of earth. Those who oppose God will be ultimately destroyed. Not as an anti, what's the word I'm thinking of here? Um, I, my apologies. There, there's a particular phrase and I can't think of it off the top of my head uh, that um, would, would point you to ceasing to exist after death that those outside of Christ will cease to exist, which uh, again, we're not, that doesn't point here because we will, they will continue to be tormented forever and ever as other points of um, scripture will get to as we go further into the book of Revelation for those who are outside of Christ being judged. A whole nother conversation. We talked about that on one of the views of hell uh, with the Bible dingers. So make sure you go back and look at that. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of that particular view. So my apologies. But uh, I think we're going to go ahead and conclude this particular episode here. But I really want to establish the fact that this passage, this chapter, should be probably taken more symbolically than literal. Because if we're taking it literal, then we've got some some issues to overcome. And we would have to figure out how do we interpret these two people being, you know, trees and lampstands at the same time as being people. So... Spend some time, as I say every time we are in this book, spend some time reading additional works, look at other views, and uh, you know, get to know the, the whole scope of eschatology because there's a lot that goes into it. This book is complex. The writing is complex, and this is not an easy thing to deal with. So, um, again, spend some time deliberately doing some research. So I hope, guys, that this was edifying for you and i hope you guys enjoyed this show and if you have please um share it with your family friends church members um share it on facebook twitter youtube wherever you're at um instagram whatever tiktok i don't know whatever social media platform you're on but that helps get this show out there and gets us known and uh we'll be continuing to do series like this not quite as long going forward but you guys voted for this when we started so this is where we're at now, but guys, I'm so glad we're under an hour mark. And, uh, we even had, you know, 
about eight minutes of uh, spinning the wheels at the beginning of the show. We had some early context build up, but spent some minutes, you know, spinning our wheels, and I didn't want to keep the show going longer than an hour. So I'm going to go ahead and close her down. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. We will see you next week as we try to figure out what in the world is happening in Chapter 12 with this woman and a dragon as we celebrate our 150th episode. So thank you all for tuning in. It's all because of you that we keep doing these shows and keep producing content. Check us out on Instagram, Reformed underscore Lifestyle and Undying Light Ministries. And we will see you guys next week. God bless. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.